Uh, we'll start in Amos 1 and actually work through chapter 3 this morning. Uh, I know Kenny kind of mentioned this uh, short, brief, or just a short three-part series through Amos. Uh, this week we'll cover chapters 1, 2, and 3, really focusing on 2 and 3. Um, and I kind of mentioned maybe reading ahead if you're able to. Next week is going to be chapters 4, 5, and 6. And then early November, we'll, uh, we'll kind of wrap that up with chapters 7, 8, and 9. Um, but when you're looking at the book of Amos, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are really kind of the, the, the core or the heart of his message. Uh, and today, though, of course, we're going to focus on these opening chapters uh, really to appropriately feel the weight of what he hits on towards the end of the book. Uh, and to feel that, we have to accurately understand why God had Amos call out the sins that he did, which was ultimately, and I say the purpose of even what we're looking at this morning, uh, the reason was to expose a deeper issue. Now, what you'll find if you do sort of just like maybe a, a broad view of Amos, uh, how it's been used or even how it's been quoted historically, uh, is that the majority of people that misapply or even misunderstand the book that, that misunderstanding or that misapplication consistently seems to be rooted in the wrong perspective of ch chapters 2 and 3. So the focal point of this morning is actually going to be the second half of 2 and all of chapter 3. But the reason it's so critical to understand these chapters is because they do lay the foundation for, you know, you could say the real message of God to Israel through Amos in this book. Uh, I know that we've probably all heard the, you know, the, the illustration of the fruit reveals the roots, that the fruit that's produced by a tree exposes the true health of the tree itself. Now, this is an image that Jesus uses constantly throughout his ministry uh, to help people see like a deeper issue that was really going on. And this is exactly what Amos does in these opening chapters. He's going to touch on several very obvious and public issues within the northern kingdom of Israel, but the point was to show them that these things that we're talking about actually expose a deeper issue. Now, he gets into that deeper issue this morning, more in chapter 3, but we'll really dive into the depth of it um, when we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6 later on. So for us, kind of just a connecting point that we're going to work towards the reality is that our attitudes, our reactions, our responses, the choices that we make expose what is really in our hearts. And this is an idea that you can even pull from Matthew 15, right? That what comes out of us is what defiles us because that's what's really in our heart. So the question is, are we constantly looking for the wiggle room to excuse our lack of faith, our lack of loyalty, our lack of desire, or... Are we seeing the fruit in our lives, digging to the root of the problem, calling it what God does, and seeking repentance and growth on the other side of it? So these opening chapters expose the fruit of a deeper issue, and the deeper issue is going to be dealt with, as we said, a little bit later on, um, but we're certainly going to get introduced to it this morning. Now, before we, I say, get into the really the message of Amos itself, I do think it's really necessary to kind of paint a backdrop of the events that are going to lead up to this book. And what we need to do is fill in some critical details to give context to the weight of Amos's message. Now, if you just dive into Amos, I say like cold turkey, and you just start reading it, it's kind of like, whoa! <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's really intense, to be, to be honest with you. 
And so looking at this, I thought, I really think it's important to understand the society that he's, that he's walking into and why this message was so necessary. Because until you recognize the world that Amos is walking into, the people and the society that he's declaring God's war to, um, you can't really feel the weight of it until you understand a little bit. So our kind of first point is Israel's history up to this point. I know we read these, but just to get an idea here, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. So the, the title of, like the, uh, of the actual series, The Lord's Roar, it comes from there, right there, verse 2, the Lord will roar from Zion. Uh, and really, you get this imagery of a lion roaring as God's sort of clarity and judgment is connected to other prophets from this era, like Joel and Hosea. But we are given a few markers to help us find our bearings within the historical context of where this book lands. So he mentions in verse 1 that this message takes place during the overlapping reigns of Uzziah, the, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and then Jeroboam II in Israel. So to kind of mark where we are in Israel's history and even how we got to the point of where it is in Jeroboam II's reign uh, in, uh, in Amos' day, uh, you have sort of this kingship line in Israel. Remember, you know, Saul's the first king, and then you have David, and then you have Solomon. Now, Solomon, his reign, remember that the second half of his kingship was lived in foolishness. And this is where, uh, if you're in 1 Kings 11, you don't have to turn there, but just for a, a biblical note there, 1 Kings 11 speaks of that, and obviously the depth of those problems are going to come out in the book of Ecclesiastes. But what you find in 1 Kings 11 is that God had confronted Solomon multiple times through prophets about his sin, but he never repented. So God promises to tear the kingdom from Solomon and to give the majority of it to a servant. But for the sake of his covenant with David, God does promise to preserve the Davidic line, which of course is going to be linked to the redemptive lineage of Christ. Now, as you continue to work through 1 Kings 11, Solomon actually finds out that the leader of this like rebellion is going to be Jeroboam I. So I just make a note, Jeroboam II is king in Amos' day, and we're talking about Jeroboam I. Uh, Jeroboam is afraid that Solomon is going to kill him, and so he runs to Egypt. And then 1 Kings 11 ends with Solomon dying. Now again, just to save time, in 1 Kings 12, that's where you have Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, takes over. He makes a really, really not smart decision, and the entire nation splits into two kingdoms. So now you have the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, which is the ten, ten tribes, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, which is Judah and Benjamin. So this, this kingdom splits, and Jeroboam the first in 1 Kings 12, now this is how it connects to Amos. If you read the end of 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam the first, uh, when he starts leading the northern kingdom of Israel, he's worried that the ten tribes that are going to follow him are going to continue to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So his solution, and again, you read this in first, at the end of 1 Kings 12, his solution was to establish two new worship capitals in his kingdom, and they were established in Bethel and Dan. He actually makes some golden calves and then... Uh, he actually anoints some priests that were not Levites. So there's a lot of, 
It's, there's a lot of problems in there, basically. Um, but there's two main takeaways that we, need to, that we need to pull from this. The first is that Bethel was the main location of this false worship, and Bethel is actually where Amos shows up. So we'll see it a little bit later on, I think closer in chapter 7. Um, but Bethel is where he shows up, and Bethel is not just the center of false worship in the northern kingdom. It's also where the king lives. But this is kind of what I think is important to note. When Amos shows up, it's almost 200 years after Jeroboam I had established these, these worship capitals in the northern kingdom. So the split of Israel happens around 975 BC, and when Amos shows up, we're somewhere between 780 and 760 BC. So again, two centuries have passed since those events have unfolded. So the message that Amos is about to bring is severe, but I want you to realize that this nation had almost two centuries to repent at this point in their history. And in fact, they were given even another 40 or 50 years before the Assyrians even showed up. So why summarize this history? I don't want you to miss God's graciousness to these people that, yes, we're going to dive into greater explanation of this even in Amos's preaching, that God had given them many opportunities to repent from the beginning of their history um, all the way to their destruction and captivity under the Assyrians around 721 B.C. As we're going to find in this series, Amos's message is one of the most severe of any Old Testament prophet. And because of that, it is important to understand that it isn't random. This isn't just a guy showing up, but it's another act of grace by God to warn and convict his children of the danger of their selfish living and false worship. Now, in verse 1, we are briefly introduced to the author, who is Amos. So Amos is both the author of the book and the prophet of it. His name means burden or the bearer of a burden. And as you kind of think about his situation, uh, he is prophesying to a people that thought they were good with God, uh, but weren't. And so he's kind of breaking that glass ceiling for them. What's fascinating about this is to see his humility and not really talking about himself hardly at all. In fact, verse 2 is the real beginning of his message to Israel, which you'll notice he doesn't take any time at all really to dive into it. So we'll take more time to talk about Amos and who he was and his background when we get to chapter 7, uh, because that's really when he gives that information, and it's really only because he's forced to by uh, this false prophet in, uh, or false priest in, uh, in Bethel. Amos was called by God to give a very specific message at a specific location, and so he heard that call and obeys God without hesitation or distraction. He shows up to Bethel, the center of false worship in the northern kingdom, and immediately gets to work in giving the message that God called him to. Now, Amos does mention that he's from Tekoa, which is a city south of Jerusalem, and Judah, the southern kingdom. So I just point that out because he's, he's a guy from the south called by God to prophesy to the north. And I just recognize, again, that if you study Second Kings, there's a lot of wars and conflicts between these two nations going on even at this time. And so Amos is literally being called like behind enemy lines to preach a message to, that, that were enemies. Uh, and I, I just mention this as a side note. He is a contemporary of several old, um, several old Testament prophets, including Isaiah, Joel, Hosea. But the interesting one, I think, is Jonah. Uh, if you look at Jonah's story, it actually happens at the beginning of Jeroboam II's reign, and Amos kind of happens at, towards the end. Um, and again, I'm not going to get sidetracked with this, but you do really find this really interesting character contrast between Jonah and Amos. 
Because if you read the first two verses of Jonah, you know, it's like, hey, this is Jonah, the prophet of God, called to Nineveh. And then the second verse is, he got out of Dodge, right? But you read the first two verses of Amos, this really neat contrast. What does it say? This is Amos, the prophet of God, called to enemy territory. And verse two is, him preaching. So you really see this neat willingness and this faithfulness to step into a difficult situation, but ultimately to do what God had called him to do. So as you get into chapter 1 now, verses 3 through 15, and then I say just the first part of chapter 2, Amos begins calling out the failures and, the, and really God's subsequent judgments on nations that are surrounding Israel. So if you start reading through chapter 1 and in the beginning of chapter 2, he doesn't even mention Israel till about a third of the way through chapter 2. Now, there's seven nations that he calls out that are not Israel, just to be clear, in chapter 1. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre or Tyrus, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and then he calls out Judah, the southern kingdom, at the end. And the, the idea here is if you're looking at a map, these are all nations that are in direct proximity to Israel. So if you look at a map, every single one of these groups are people that are surrounding Israel. So the image that you get from chapter 1 and the beginning of 2 is Amos is basically painting a bullseye around Israel and then in the end to hit the bullseye of Israel itself. All these surrounding nations that he mentions are enemies. And the point was for the message to Israel was supposed to hit home a little bit harder. He's saying you've messed up basically worse than anybody else. And so for Israel, the message was supposed to be very clear. The situation that you're in is extremely serious. Now, we're not going to dive into great detail for the sake of time, um, but I do want us to see everything that he calls out in these seven other nations because in some form, every single one of these condemnations comes back up in relation to Israel. So there's one thing mentioned with each nation, but then they all come up later and saying, they're guilty of these, but you're guilty of all of them. And again, the whole point was to elevate the severity of the message. So in chapter one, he calls out Damascus, and what he condemns is the military and political oppression of other people. And then he calls out Gaza, and he condemns them for their involvement in the slave trade. In Tyre and Tyrus, he condemns them for breaking covenants and treaties just to get personal profit. In Edom, uh, he condemns them for corruption, political corruption, but even just the bitter oppression of God's people. Now, Amon is an interesting one in verse 13 because he brings out a really graphic illustration of something, but the whole point was a condemnation of these people, the Ammonites, that were selfishly uh, and, and this selfishly motivated murder of unborn children. It was done as a means of preserving themselves and preserving the power and success that they'd gained. Now, if you were in uh, Adult Bible Fellowship this morning, we actually talked about Ammon and Moab, the Ammonites and the Moabites, and those are linked to um, Lot's two daughters. Uh, you just really, I say, sadly see what became of these nations. Uh, so that's the end of chapter 1. And then you get to chapter 2, he mentions Moab, and his condemnation against them is their lack of respect and their rebellion against established authority. And then in Judah, the southern kingdom, in chapter 2, uh, he just basically tells them that you've known God, you know his law, but you've chosen to walk away from it. So we just work through those quickly as we get to, to chapter 2, where he really starts to address Israel. And you see this idea again of painting a bullseye around the nation of Israel. Amos is purposefully blindsiding Israel in order to help them feel the weight of the message that God had for them. 
So the cheering that may have occurred with each condemnation of these enemies would have quickly turned to silence and murmurs when Amos turns the corner to God's true message, which was telling these people that they'd failed to worship God, they'd failed to honor God, and they'd failed to represent God accurately, and that was something that God took very seriously. The final statement that's made to Judah right before he gets to Israel, it is supposed to be an early hint of the real and deeper problem that was going on in Israel. They had walked away from God, which was the root cause of all the other issues that he's about to talk to. Now, he's going to get into those deeper problems, as I said later on, but what he does now in chapter 2 and 3 is he exposes the fruit of that reality. You've walked away from God, so the first thing we're going to do is expose this deeper problem, and this is where we get into his condemnations against Israel, the message that God gave him to give to Israel. So I have this as exposing the deeper problem, and it's kind of the idea of low-hanging fruit. You know, like if you're picking fruit, you're going for the easiest thing. And the idea here, right when he dives in, before getting into the depth of the issue, he's trying to say, look at these really public, really obvious examples of the depth of the real problem. So I just say that because what he's talking about is not the focus point. It's trying to expose this is low-hanging fruit of a deeper-seated problem. So exposing the deeper problem, he begins to call out some very public and very obvious issues that are prevalent throughout the entire society. And again, he's doing this, as John MacArthur puts it, um, to expose the depth of their their real failures, uh, the failure of worshiping God selfishly and trying to live their lives on their own terms. So we're just going to, what we're going to actually do now is I'm going to just read through chapter 2, kind of verse by verse, and and explain really what he's talking about. And we're going to do that through chapter 3 as well, um, to be able to see what he actually says and then connect it to the, the point of what he's trying to work towards. And the idea is to just give us a really good grasp of the message, looking at what he says, and then connecting it to this overall um, idea that he's trying to get to. And then at the end, of course, we'll just close with some application thoughts and questions uh, to leave with this morning. So starting in chapter 2, I'm just going to read verses 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, And turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they themselves down upon clothes, they lay themselves down upon clothes, laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. So in verse 6, you have this idea of selling the righteous for silver. And this is actually a reference to their corrupt judicial system. The idea was that someone was innocent, but they would be declared guilty because the, the judge would receive a bribe. So selling the righteous for silver is a, is a reference to the corrupt judicial system. Then in the second part of 6, and then actually the, the first part of um, chapter or verse 7, I'm sorry, he's referencing this idea that there's no empathy and no sympathy being shown towards people that were genuinely in need. And actually this idea here 
And verse 7, they pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. It's almost like the suffering of other people was entertainment. So they were looking at the hardship of people, and it was actually sort of like this sick enjoyment. You kind of get this image of like the Colosseum in Rome where there's like people are being executed, but it was used for entertainment, basically. And you kind of get that idea that these people are looking at people that are suffering, and their mentality towards it is not sympathy or even empathy. It's like entertainment. You're just watching people suffer, and and it's almost fun, or it's like, well, it's not happening to me. You know, there's just this arrogance in their perspective, and I say of people that were actually in need. And then you get to the second half of verse 7, Uh, And it's really a a, a heartbreaking explanation of of a scenario, this reference to a father and a son. Now, there's a couple different connecting points within the issues within their society, but there's one thing that is really critical to take away from that explanation, that that story. The main takeaway is from that tragic circumstance is the generational contamination of sin. It's a father using his role of leadership within the home to propagate lust and immorality to his own son. So instead of teaching his own child integrity, fidelity, self-discipline, even respect or chivalry, he's pushing his own son in the direction of condemnation simply for temporal pleasure. And what you see here is the collapse of a home that is tied to the collapse of their society. A, a, A father wrecking his leadership to basically push his son in the wrong direction. And again, you just see the collapse of a home related to the collapse of their society. Verse 8, this idea of borrowing a cloak, basically, and not giving it back, it's a reference to the law in Deuteronomy 24. These people were openly and blatantly violating direct commands of form and function from the law for selfish gain and personal comfort. It always seems to be, that comfort would always seem to be at the expense of someone else. Now, I want you to notice, though, about this, that a lot of these are general references to the public. This wasn't just about the rich and powerful that were doing these things. The point is it was everybody. Every level of their society was corrupt. It was contaminated. Even the poor in their society were guilty of these things. And again, he paints very quickly in just these three verses the complete corruption and erosion of their society from top to bottom. And then you get to verses 9 through 12. He says, Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised you up, I raised up of your sons for prophets, and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. In verse 9, what you see is God's graciousness to them, that despite all these issues, God had still allowed them to grow as a nation, to gain military and political victories. But the point is, and don't miss it, that he, God, was the one that gave them those victories in the first place. In verse 10, again, they not only had forgotten God's present grace and mercy, but they'd actually completely forgotten God's past miraculous deliverances and provision. The guilty, and actually it's the guilt of a lack of gratitude by forgetting all that God was still doing and all that he had done. 
This also insinuates a severe neglect of God's word because at this time in their history, they had the Pentateuch, they had other inspired writings, and so to forget about them was actually tied directly to a complete neglect of God's word itself. In verse 11, you have God's graciousness in sending them what was possibly dozens of prophets by this time in their history and other righteous men, these men that would take this Nazarite vow, that were willing to live set-apart lives in order to honor God. Now, I mention that because if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, Kenny actually just went through an in-depth look of the Nazarite vow a couple weeks ago. And I say that because if you study that vow, you recognize how serious and how thorough it, of a commitment it was. It wasn't this casual thing. It, it, it was very, very involved, and it was very serious. Now, we talk about the prophets, and we talk about these people trying to live righteously, but then what does he say their response was to this in verse 12? What was their response? They forgot everything that God had done. They neglected God's word and God's law. They corrupted and mocked those that lived righteously, and they silenced the prophets so that they didn't have to feel guilty about the choices that they wanted to make. And so you really start to get an idea of the real depth of the issue, and I just want to point out you realize, hopefully, that it wasn't just about social and societal issues, but those were the rotten fruits of a deeper problem. And he starts kind of hinting at that in verses 9 through 12 that we just read. Now, 13 and forward into chapter 3 is where you really start to feel the weight of his message come down. So look at verse 13. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. So your sin is, is just weighing you down. It's, it's overloaded. It's overpacked. Therefore, the flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handeth, uh, handleth the bow. And he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. So the weight and the reality of God's judgment, it was sure and it was concrete. For centuries they had mocked the righteous, corrupted the faithful, lived selfishly, worshipped arrogantly, and had forgotten and neglected God's goodness and God's law. Their rebellion and calloused hearts would make them immovable when facing what was to come. And that's sort of the whole image that you get in verses 13 through 16. Uh, they, were, they were so weighed down by it, they wouldn't be able to escape it. They were ripe for judgment, which should have woken them up to the depth of their sin. But they'd allowed temporary pleasures to distract them from the deeper problem, which is relating back to their relationship and responsibility to God as his chosen people. And so the question, you, you know, you feel the weight of like, wow, okay, this is really serious. The situation is bad. He's kind of dabbled, touched on this deeper issue and the rotten fruits of it. But the question becomes, what was the judgment to come? What judgment was coming specifically? And then why was it going to be so severe? And that's where you move into chapter 3. And we really, in chapter 3, start to get some more insight into the deeper problem that's going on. Now look at verse 3. I know Kenny read these, but just again, now you're hearing them in this context. Verse, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, so because of that, I will punish you 
for all your iniquities. Now, these are the central verses of the entire book of Amos. So if you're looking at the book, 3, 1, and 2 are like the, the, the heart, the core of the entire message. Because you are my people, because you bear my name, I will punish you. I will hold you accountable. And I want you to recognize that, that this confrontation, it is an act of love by God for his people. You read Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. It says, Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God's correction, his conviction is a demonstration of his love, that he loves us and he loves us enough to correct us, to guide us, and to help us. So that's true. But I don't want you to miss where this idea is linked. Don't miss what failure they've committed that makes this judgment so necessary. They were a people that possessed the title of, of God's children, of God's people. They were to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a peculiar treasure, and yet they had failed to represent God accurately. God's judgment and conviction is love. It is an act of grace. But more so, it is a lesson to the world that God takes his name and his glory very seriously, especially when it's connected to the lives of those that claim to be his children. If you study uh, Luke 12, this idea, right, that to whom much is given, much is required. As Christ challenged his own disciples in Luke 14, right, taking up your cross is serious business. So what does he tell them? Count the cost. If you're going to follow Christ, you better count the cost of faithfully following God before you foolishly take his name on your life casually. If you think that God doesn't take casual Christianity seriously, Amos exposes the foolishness of that without hesitation and without, without any muddied water. If you think God is content with a casual commitment to him, then you have already been deceived. And this is tied to his statements in verses 9 and 10. So look at those. Uh, uh, so we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm just tying it in. Verse 9, publish in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. He's calling out these nations, these Gentile nations, basically saying, grab a seat to the judgment of my people as a demonstration of how serious I take you claiming my name. He's inviting Gentile nations to watch Israel be punished. But why? As a means of demonstrating God's power, God's holiness, and also as a means of drawing people to him. It would show the world that God is holy and God is alone worthy of the worship that he has commanded of his children, not the worship that they preferred to offer. Look at verses 3 through 6. Can two walk together except they, they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? So looking at verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? It's actually a reference to Leviticus 26. And the idea is that you can't walk with God if you aren't in agreement or, or in alignment with him, with what he has commanded and demanded of his people. So here it's this very clear line that God draws the line between what is acceptable worship and what is not. 
He determines that, not us. And then in verse 4, these statements about these, this lion and this young lion, the point is that God doesn't say anything that he doesn't mean. If God says it, he means it. Uh, and then every word is true and established from God because the God who said it is true and eternal. And again, this is another warning, and it's actually tied to not treating God's roar, God's words, casually. Then you look at verses 5 and 6. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil or judgment or disaster in a city and the Lord hath not done it? So again, this connection here that when suffering occurs because of a willful, selfish, and we say sinful decision, and I want to point out that this is referencing this life. It's not eternity. He's saying in this life, when you make sinful, selfish decisions, the misery and the suffering that follows that is actually what you could call from Scripture is a law of consequence. This law of consequence that you feel the weight of your sin, you, you suffer for your sin, and again, we're saying in this life, you make a foolish decision and there's misery that follows it. This law of consequence is actually an act of God's grace to basically prove to you that getting your way is the worst thing that you could possibly want or pursue. You look at verse 5, this image of a bird falling into a trap. And again, it's getting into the trap because there's something there that it thinks it's going to enjoy. It thinks there's food. It thinks there's pleasure. And it gets it. And what happens? <laughs> like, I don't think the bird is going to be like, oh, this isn't too bad, right? <laughs> the whole point is you are getting, the bird is getting, it thinks it's getting something and all it gets is a trap. And the whole point here is when in fact it is just trick and deception and it only leads to a cage and suffering. And verse six, the city is warned before disaster strikes. And this whole idea now moving towards even this push towards towards repentance, to act and do something while there's still time, to feel the weight of selfishness, the weight of conviction of God's warning now in order to draw you back to God, because that pain is God's grace showing you that it's not worth it. And then you get to verses 7 and 8, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto, the, unto his servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So the lion has roared, God has spoken. And this is another reminder, don't take God's word casually. And I say this for personal reflection, honestly, looking at you and your, your relationship to God's word, what does your personal quiet time, your personal study of God's word actually look like? Is there thought? Is there energy? Is there prayer? Is there a desire to seek to understand God, to know Him, and to, to please Him, to glorify Him? Or is studying God's Word on your own barely on your radar at all? And I point that out because this idea of the emphasis of God's Word, He has spoken, and a casual attitude towards God's Word exposes the rotten fruit of a casual attitude towards God. And that is not something that we can afford to live with. And that's this point that he's really pushing towards. Now look at verse 11 uh, through 15. Therefore, so this is tying into what's the result? So there's judgment coming. What's the result? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adver adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. 
Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. Now, I do want to stop at 12 because he is actually referencing this, uh, this faithful remnant that you see come up in the Old Testament a lot. This faithful remnant is being preserved. So this is, I say, this image of hope and redemption. But don't lose the graphicness of the image itself. Because he says it's just like a shepherd uh, tries to get a piece of a lamb. And the idea as a shepherd was if you were working for somebody and a lion comes and attacks one of the sheep, you had the fun job of trying to get a piece of the sheep away from the lion to prove to your boss, I didn't steal it. Like, I didn't, look, this is all that's left. The ear, the leg, this is all that's left. The lion ate it. You actually see this with Joseph and his brothers, right? That they're, and I'm not that I'm condoning what they did, but they're at least intelligent enough to bring something back. Like, oh, what happened to Joseph? Oh, he got eaten by a lion. No, they bring back the coat, drench it in blood, and it was this idea to prove innocence. Obviously, they weren't. But here, the idea of the shepherd is, I'm proving to you I didn't steal it. I'm just proving to you a lion actually ate it. So it is the, this idea of a faithful remnant being preserved, but don't lose the graphicness of the illustration because this judgment was still going to happen even in the midst of people being saved through it. Then verse 13, Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and, the fall, and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. So as you're, you're moving through this and moving through this judgment, we find this clear prophecy that is referencing the Assyrian captivity, which again, I mentioned this before, but it doesn't happen for another 40 years after Amos shows up. So I would say even that four decades is another little picture of God's graciousness to these people to respond, like he said in the city, respond to the trumpet being blown and the lion roaring. All of this is the result of their injustices, their casual attitude towards God and his word. And this is the result of the selfish living and the selfish worship. Now, you look at the description of, of a lot of what's going on, the injustices. You look at God's, you know, you say his wrath against them for this. And you would kind of think like, man, this nation's probably struggling. You know, they're like, they're barely getting by. But if you study the northern kingdom's history, when Amos shows up in Bethel, the northern kingdom is actually at its absolute peak. Jeroboam II reigned for over 40 years, which is longer than any other king uh, in their history. Through political and military campaigns, they had enlarged their borders to the greatest size in their history, and economically, they were extremely wealthy, powerful, and successful. So the world, and even they themselves, looked at their situation they saw power, they saw luxury, and they saw success. But God saw a selfish and depraved society, and you see that in what Amos calls out. And that is why understanding Amos's message is so critical for us. Because in the end, as we kind of transition into this closing application, it doesn't matter what we think or feel about our lives. If God says we're producing rotten fruit, it's rotten. And there's no debating it. 
It doesn't matter what we look at, how we justify. Well, I don't feel convicted. I don't. It doesn't matter. If God says it's rotten, it's rotten. We're reminded of Christ's words in Mark 8. What is it really worth if we gain the whole world but lose our own souls? What does it matter if you're losing where it really matters? And don't forget Psalm 73, right? The psalmist is confused and even frustrated by the apparent prosperity of the world until what? Till he walks into the sanctuary, the presence of God, and he agrees with God that it is all rotten fruit when self becomes the center of what we do and who we are instead of Christ. In conclusion, and I think this is for all, it is for all of us, that we have to look at the fruit of our life. Our reactions, our responses, our attitudes, our choices, our habits, our priorities, everything. When taking a broad and honest look at your life, an honest look at your life, what is exposed? When the Holy Spirit shows you that something is off, when you know something's wrong, the question is, do you resist it? Do you ignore it, right? Do you start looking for that wiggle room? Or do you address it and take biblical action to fight it and to grow? A focus on self and on temporary things will decimate your ability to reach this world where it really needs it, which is eternally. And I use this kind of as an illustration as we close, because even as believers, we can get so caught up in political, global, social issues, and we will dedicate so much time and so much energy in our life to make sure that everyone knows how involved and how informed we are. Now, I do want to say it's certainly not wrong to be informed about what's going on, but I would also say it's not wrong to be involved in preventing certain things that we see in the world, okay? So being informed, helping prevent certain, prevent certain things, there's nothing in a sense wrong with that. But I, I just, I want to be clear, okay? Do you really think that God is more concerned with temporal issues than he is with his glory? Do you really think he's more concerned with temporal issues than he is with the eternal condition of men's souls? And I would ask, why should we be any different? We quickly will get behind any movement that stirs us emotionally, but then simultaneously overlook the spiritual condition of our kids. We'll neglect the health of our marriage, and we'll even excuse our lack of loyalty to the body of Christ, which, by the way, are all things Scripture actually commands faithfulness and prioritizing of. And we'll trade our churches and our homes and our families so we can feel good about our involvement and our commitment to temporal things. Now, I look back at Amos, and I just use that again to highlight how misplaced of a theory it is to say that Amos and God were more concerned with the social and political status of Israel. That's not the point. If you look at the opening verses of chapter 3, what does he say? You are God's children. You bear God's name, and you have failed to accurately represent him, to honor him, to worship him, and to glorify him. And that, that is not okay. In these opening chapters, Amos makes one thing abundantly clear. God takes your representing him very seriously. And the question is, do we? Do we take the responsibility of representing God's glory to this world seriously? Because, because he does. Not in temporal issues, but in eternal ones. So in closing, I just ask these questions and we'll close in prayer. Are you willing to see the fruit of your life, to dig deeper, to find the problem, to agree with God about what is right, what is true, and what is acceptable in his sight, 
and to repent, to grow, to change as a result of it? Or are you okay with continuing to produce selfish, rotten fruit? Thank you.